So we left off in Acts 5, verse 11, as we are following the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church through the apostles. Uh, We've seen the Spirit working in church growth. We've seen preaching. We've seen miracles. We saw the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And and we've seen in Acts 5, uh, Satan, now, whenever there's this great move of God, we see Satan not sit back and take that uh, casually. So as the church is growing, as the church is demonstrating power, as the the early believers are filled with the Spirit, uh, we see Satan uh, recruits people for his own work. And it's still the same same today. Satan says, well, if you can't beat them, join them. So there's persecution that comes from the outside, and then there's infiltration that comes from the inside. If you can't beat them from the outside, then join them and get on the inside. And we saw that with Ananias and Sapphira, these two people that wanted to ride on the coattails of the glory of those people that were selling their goods and, and giving to support ministry, giving to support you know, caring for people. And so they had uh, allowed Satan to bring hypocrisy into their lives. And we see even today the danger of uh, Satan getting a foothold in the church through a number of different areas, can be through false teaching, can be a number of different ways. One of the ways that he gets a foothold in the church is through hypocrisy. And remember, Jesus told his disciples that. He told them after he'd fed the 5,000, he said, guys, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And he compares hypocrisy to leaven, which is just yeast, which is the thing you put in bread and you put a little amount in and it spreads. And so one of the challenges with hypocrisy or wearing a mask is what hypocrisy just means. It comes from uh, ancient Grecian times when you had a, a play, actors on the stage. Uh, you didn't, you know, people were sitting far away. and It was hard to see the expression on people's faces. So they had masks. They had the big frowny face mask and the big smiley face mask. And they would use those to show these the features were exaggerated so that people could see what was the tone of the emotions of the scene. So you'd hold up one mask or the other. But the idea was being two-faced, having two masks or wearing a mask. And the the actors were called hypocrites or hypocrites. So the idea behind the hypocrisy with Ananias and Sapphira was that uh, there was this difference between who they really were and who they were pretending to be. They were pretending to give all to God when they were only really giving part. Now, they could have been honest about just giving part. No one would have faulted them for that. But God knows what they've done and and gives Peter the the information to confront them on that and God brings judgment. So along with power and growing and growing church life and the filling of the Spirit, we see then Satan had filled these two hearts to lie. And so there was not just power, but then there was infiltration of Satan and then there was a move of purity by God, purifying the congregation. Why purifying the congregation? Because hypocrisy is like leaven. It spreads, and unless you deal with it, then it continues to, to corrupt the entire church. So uh, God dealing with that in chapter 5, and we pick up in verse 12. Well, actually, verse 11 says, Great fear came upon all the church as they carried these two out and had seen and uh, God sort of establishing holiness and establishing honesty in the midst of the congregation. Verse 12 says, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. 
And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord. That's what believers are added to, not the church role, just, but really the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So there are three things that oftentimes go together. I've mentioned them. I'll sum them up for you. Power and purity and persecution. When the church is powerful, it will, because, it will be because there is purity, and that will oftentimes bring on persecution. And so we see that just on the heels of this purifying act of God in the congregation. We see God answering their prayers. They had prayed, Lord, that you would allow us to speak your word and confirm that, lead the way with signs and wonders. And God answered that prayer through the hands of the apostles. Many, not just a few, not just here and there. At this time in church history, the church is alive with power, with miracles, and uh, they were done among the people, not in private places. This was well known. And the apostles were gathering regularly in the temple area on Solomon's porch. That's where they were teaching. And this was an area in the temple, sort of like a colonnade. There were columns and it was a roofed over area. And they would just teach and gather there uh, socially and for teaching. And verse 13 is so interesting, isn't it? It says, and yet none of the rest dared join them. Why do you think they didn't? they were afraid to join in this, whoever the rest is, and, and some would say that the rest is those unbelieving Jews, those other people that were there in and around the temple area, uh, some of the leaders of the, the Jews and other people that are there. Well, they, they said the rest of them, they, they didn't dare to join them. Well, maybe number one, because they were getting persecuted. Remember, Peter had just gotten taken, Peter and John had just gotten carted off to prison and threatened. So maybe that's why they didn't want to join them. But more contextually, right on the heels of Ananias and Sapphira being struck down or dying, breathing their last because of their hypocrisy being exposed, maybe that's why they didn't want to join them. Hey, this is a serious deal. We don't want to just casually uh, get involved if we're not serious about the Lord. This was, in this early time, this was no seeker-friendly church. Have you heard that term before? Seeker-friendly church? Now, Church, the gathering, is a place where we want people to come who don't know the Lord. We want you to come and hear the Word of God and be challenged and be encouraged and all that stuff. But not at the expense of also maintaining uh, purity. Not at the expense of talking about sin. I just was reading an article. I, I'd heard it on the news and just, I, I got to look that up. I'd been hearing about colleges now establishing something called safe spaces. Have you heard about that? Yeah, I see a few people nodding their heads. So evidently now um, college students are uh, being emotionally traumatized by hearing information that is opposed to their own beliefs. So if you believe something, uh, it was Brown University was having a debate and they invited in a guest speaker to be part of this debate. And because the uh, faculty and administration was worried that some of the discussion might uh, not just be offensive, but emotionally harmful to people, to the students. They set up what they call a safe space, and the safe space involves cookies and coloring books 
and Play-Doh and pillows and movies about puppies. And I mean, I'm not making this up. This is in the New York Times. So that students who felt uh, like they'd been injured by this information that was opposed to them could come and, and have a, a safe place to escape uh, opposing thoughts. And, and that's uh, what's been going on. And so these people, you know, so, so church, in some senses, should be a safe place uh, where, where God is lifted up, safe in terms of there's grace here and there's no condemnation here, but there is truth here. And sometimes truth in and of itself can be offensive. If you've come in here thinking and holding on to this idea that you're a good person and we're going to share with you the gospel that says you're actually a sinner in need of the grace of God and you can't save yourself and you need the cross, well, that offends me. Then I'm sorry. Then this is not a safe place for you. We are going to have to offend you so that you can be saved. It's not offending you for the sake of getting in your face or for the sake of being offensive. It's just the nature of the gospel. It is life to those that are listening and, and responding. It is death to those that are dying and refusing. And that's just the nature of the gospel. It has those two effects. So some didn't dare join them because they recognized that it's not seeker-friendly. You don't play around. Uh, seeker-friendly churches are churches that say, we want you to come in and we want you to be really comfortable here so much so we're not going to talk about sin. And we're not going to talk about the wrath of God. We're not going to talk about hell or the day of judgment. But we're going to give you some useful, practical information for your finances. And we'll preach relevant sermons to relevant people and, and blah, blah, blah. What we want is truth. Because lies don't do anybody any good. And so that, if that offends you, I'm sorry, but... That is true. And so what the apostles were sharing was in some ways offensive, but not purposely. Look, it says none of them, none of the rest dare join them, but the people esteemed them highly. They were respected. I'll bet they were. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord. So that didn't have the effect on everybody of driving people away, the idea that, that God was purifying and, and that there was a sense of holiness among the community didn't drive everybody away. It only drove away the people that still wanted to hide. But those that heard and were, were interested and were willing, people were getting saved in multitudes. It says believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. And verse 15 says, So they brought the sick into the streets, laid them on beds and couches, and that even the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. So was there, was there any power in the shadow of Peter? Uh, was there any power when the woman came and wanted to just touch? She thought, if I could only touch the hem of his garment, the woman that had the issue of blood, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, was there power in the hem of Jesus' garment? I mean, this is how we develop this whole idea of holy relics, that someone has this relic. We were in, when we were in Europe a couple years ago, you go to these cathedrals and there's like the bones of the hand of Pope whatever, and people go and they worship the bones of the hand. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. Are we going to kiss this statue or do this thing? Those things, there's no power. Otherwise, we'd be worshiping those things. And that's what people do. When they don't know where the power is, we'd have, well, this is Jesus' garment. They, they've given out so many pieces of the cross 
You know, people claim, well, this is a, a sliver from the cross that Jesus actually hung on. And like, there's enough slivers of the cross to build like 2,000 crosses, you know. Everybody's got a sliver of the cross. So these things can be venerated, but the idea is that there's not necessarily power in Jesus' garment. He said, I felt power go out from me. And, and there's no power in the shadow of Peter. The power is from the Lord. That's just what people are ex- exercising their faith and saying, if only I can get close enough, then maybe God will do for me what he's done for others. So it's the faith that, that these people are having to come and, and seeing what God is doing. Verse 16 says, A multitude gathered from surrounding cities, so word is spreading, and everybody that is coming, it says, all are being healed. What an exciting time to live in in, in the life of the church I mean, you want to talk about what conversations they were having. These are the people that are sitting in the house churches. These are the people that are sitting in the Bible studies. People that have been sick and have been healed. People that have been demon-possessed and now are walking in life. You want to talk about a church with power. Phenomenal. But remember, what comes on the heels of these things is persecution. Verse 17 says, Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. Remember, the high priest was part of what they called the Sadducean party. It was a religio-political group. These were the, uh, um, the wealthy, the aristocratic. The high priest was a puppet of Rome. They were in cahoots together. And uh, the Sadducees, remember from a few Bible studies ago, they didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. And they didn't believe in angels. So this is the Sadducees. And they were filled not with curiosity or not with interest. They were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So these are guys that were very offended by the information that was being shared. And sometimes if you are trying to hold on to power or if you're trying to hold on to authority, then information that undermines that is threatening. And their power structure was being threatened by these uh, fishermen turned preachers. So they laid their hands on them, and not just Peter, not just John, but all of them, and put them in common prison. Why? They were filled with indignation. What What a sad commentary on their lives, that they can actually see people being healed, people's lives being transformed, and be mad about it. What, 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 that, that's to me such a sad commentary on, on their own minds and their own way of thinking. Verse 19 says, But at night, that word but is very important, they put him in prison, but at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now, what did the Sadducees not believe in? Angels. Does God not have a sense of humor? Oh, you guys don't believe in angels, really? Okay, well, we'll see if we can deal with that. So and it sends an angel to open the prison doors and, uh, and, and let all the guys out. And he says to them, now I want you to go and get out of Jerusalem. I mean, just get it. It's too dangerous here. You guys should leave. Maybe go back to the Sea of Galilee area. Things will be safer for you there. Is that what the angel tells them? He says, I want you to go right back to the temple and speak to the people again. Because the people in the temple, the ones that are exposed to 
hypocritical religion, the ones that are exposed to, the, to legalism. These are the very, the very ones that are persecuting you are the ones that need most to hear what you have to say. Because they might not all be saved, but some of them will be. Many from the council get saved. One of those being the Apostle Paul. We'll talk more about him later in the study. Our tendency, my tendency, your tendency is where there's opposition to run from it. And that was not their tendency. That was not their command. Their command was go back and and keep preaching to those people. I remember hearing a story about a young missionary that had felt called to this village called Bundi. I think it was in India. And hearing the story was just so compelling because he had gone there and within the first couple of weeks, he moves into town, he starts doing his work, starts sharing about Jesus there. And of course, it's largely Hindu and three guys show up in his little shack that he's renting in his village and they say, look, we don't like what you're saying. Uh, you've invaded our safe space, so to speak. And uh, it, it offends us. So if you don't leave, we're going to kill you. And so he says, uh, okay, what, you know, what do I do? So he goes back to his missionary sending base, to the one that, who was sort of in charge there, and said, I don't know what to do. I've gone to this village, and they're telling me they're going to kill me if I go back. What should I do? And the guy said, well, I'll tell you what. Were you or did you or did you not feel like God was calling you there? He says, yes, I felt God was calling me there. So here's what you should do. You should go back on your way into the village, dig your grave, and then go back into the, to the village and keep doing what you're doing. And so the guy did it. Goes back to the village, digs his grave, and goes back into the place he was reading. Another few days go by, and the three guys come back to him and said, oh, we, we warned you, we told you not to come back, and now you're going to make us have to kill you, and we don't want to do that. But now you've forced our hand. And so the guy said, look, you can kill me, but I want to warn you that if you kill me, others will come. And his confidence and his courage so touched those three guys. Matter of fact, they didn't kill him. He led them to salvation. A little while goes by, he calls back to his headquarters and says, hey, I want you to come down to Bundy. And the guy said, uh-uh, you said that, you know, they're threatening your life. I'm not coming there. He said, no, no, I want you to come and dedicate the first church here. And then he comes down for the church dedication, and, he, and as they're talking, he points to this guy over here. He says, there's that guy, there's his family. That was the big guy who wanted to kill me. And now he's the pastor of the church. I mean, phenomenal things. So, so our tendency, my, I recognize this about us. We are the pain avoidance generation. We are the opposition avoidance. Just like I talked about these safe places. If anything makes me uncomfortable, then I want to avoid it. I don't want anybody to challenge me. When people challenge your Christianity, I hope we are mature enough as a church. I hope we're mature enough as individual, as individuals to know, don't take that personally. Don't, don't be one of these people that gets so offended by, by when people feel different than you. And don't be, you know, you can still have relationships with people that disagree with you. You don't have to take it personally and be offended and, oh, I can't, I can't talk to them anymore because we disagree and now I'm offended. I go to pastoral Bible studies where the other pastors hold very different views on things than I do. And I go on purpose because they're my neighbors. And I want them to know that, yes, we disagree on some vital things in terms of, in terms of church doctrine, but that doesn't mean 
I, I have to distance myself and separate myself from you because I love you. And I'm called to share with you the love of Christ. I remember there was a, a woman that moved in. She was a pastor moving to the county, female pastor. And she knows that a lot of people are against women in ministry. And she's had it and heard it before. And so I go over to introduce myself and welcome her to the community. And she said, well, first thing, what do you think about women in ministry? She's ready for the battle right on. Right? Tries to engage me in the battle. And praise the Lord for his wisdom at the time. I said, you know, it really doesn't matter what I think of women in ministry. The question is, what does the Bible say about the topic? And you have to read it and be fully persuaded that you're in line with the word of God in your life. I'm called to come here and just love you because you're my neighbor. And we can do that. We can love our neighbor as ourself, which is exactly what the Bible says to do, and not be personally offended and, oh, my rights. And, oh. Jesus told us we would be persecuted, but then we act so surprised when it happens. And he tells them, go back and speak to the people. But what are they going to say to them? Read the rest of that verse. All the words of this life. And, and I love that. This life. Because there's that life. That life without God. That life in religion. That life in hypocrisy. That life in atheism. There's that life. But then there's this life. This life that we've experienced. This life is the Greek word Zoe, which is different. There's, there's three different words for life in Greek. One of them, you guys will recognize, it's the word bios, where we get biology. That's just natural life, nature, the things of the earth. This word, zoe, always is almost always translated everlasting life or eternal life. And I want you to know, maybe you've thought that eternal life speaks of a length of time. It's a quantity of life. It's an extension of life in terms of time out into eternity. And eternal is a time word, but there's more to it to, than that. Eternal is not just a quantity, it's a quality. So when uh, Jesus says to his disciples in, in John 17, he talks about um, when a person comes to know Christ, this is, and this is eternal life, this is Zoe, this life here, is to know God and His Son, Jesus Christ. When, did, when do you enter into eternal life? Not when you die. You enter into eternal life as a quality of life when you get saved. It means living for eternal things. And it just that's why Jesus could say to, to Mary and Martha after Lazarus dies, he, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? So it just means that that quality of eternal life just extends past my natural death and on into eternity. The same life I have now, I just, I just lose this body. I get a new one, praise the Lord for that, with lots of hair. <laughs> you watch, you're not going to recognize me. Steve, is that you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm holding on to that in faith. And if you say anything against that... I'll need my cookies and my coloring book and my Play-Doh. <laughs> Don't hurt my feelings and tell me that's not true. <laughs> but look, this is what people need. They need to know that there is another quality of life. The Bible says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. But we who are dead, He has made alive in Christ. And that is why we do what we do. Not because we, we want misery loves company and not because we feel like, well, 
you know, we want others to believe because we don't want to be alone in this. We share life with people. We share the life of Christ with people because we know they need it. Because I needed it. And if you've never got, if you've never had an experience of repentance and salvation, then you've got nothing to share. But when you have walked, when you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, no one can shut you up. And I pray that that's your experience. I pray that it is. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. They just, they didn't, they didn't argue with the angel. They didn't say, well, we need to go hide. We need to get out of here. I mean, don't you know, if we go back, we're going to get arrested again. They don't think about, they heard what God said to do. They heard through the angel and they went and they did it right back at it. I mean, how do you, how do you conquer people like that? They heard, they went, and they taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders and the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison such securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Surprise! Everybody was surprised. The guards were surprised. I mean, somehow in the middle of the night, the angel snuck the 12 apostles out without the guards noticing, and either they, either he snuck them through the bars of the prison or opened the doors, shut them without the guards ever noticing. And I, I remember reading, uh, my kids loved uh, Brother Andrew, God's Smuggler. Have you ever read that book? Great book. My kids read it to our kids when they were young. They loved it. And uh, I remember him praying as he's smuggling Bibles behind the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union. He'd say, Lord, I know in the Gospels you were able to make blind eyes to see. And now, Lord, I pray that you would make seeing eyes blind. And he would smuggle his Bibles in and they'd be right in the back seat in boxes and the guards would just usher him right through the checkpoint or whatever it was. And so how did this happen? Uh, we don't know exactly, but the point is, is that when they go to get him out of the prison, they're not there. They've been, so they put him in prison, God lets him out. I mean, you can't, you can't conquer guys like this. You can't, when God is for you, who can be against you? I mean, if God is fighting with you and, and he's fighting for you and you're serving him, then, then how can anybody come against you? And that's what they're learning. And when they heard that, they, they entered the temple and they continued preaching and they didn't find them in the prison. In verse 24, what, what an astounding, what do you mean they're not there? Did you look again? What do you mean they're not there? When the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. Where are they? Where could they have gone? Come on, guys, you're kidding, right? Where could they have? Twelve men don't disappear from prison. And, and in fact, verse 25 says, one came and told them, saying, um, well, they didn't disappear. The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Can you imagine, just put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. Imagine the frustration. Did you just say they're back in the temple? And we, they were in prison. How'd they get back in the temple? What are they? And they're teaching again. Oh, we told them not to teach. They know, and they're feeling their power slip away. Who has the power in this passage? Who has the power at this time in history? It's not those that are in worldly power. They are not the ones in power. 
you know, we th you think change is going to come from Washington, D.C.? You think change is going to come from whoever is the, the election? Jesus Christ is in power. Now, now don't get me wrong. The Bible says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So there is, there are, that, that's what's behind all of this. It's, it's not just about the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Ananias and Sapphira. This is about Satan and, and wickedness and death and darkness and truth and light and eternity. That's what's going on behind all of this. It's still what goes on behind everything that happens today. When you scratch your head and you go, what is going on in the world? Just know it transcends flesh and blood. And, and if we think, and if we're somehow dependent on Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton to make change, then you have missed the power we have in Jesus Christ. I, I, I love that, that, that the, we who, who seem to be marginalized or powerless are the ones in accompaniment with being filled with the Spirit of God have tremendous power. The problem is we just have to obey God. And that's what we're scared to do sometimes. And if the church continues to cower and, and be afraid to say what's right because there's pressure from ISIS or there's pressure from this movement or this agenda or this group, and I'm not saying be a jerk about things. I'm not saying be, you know, annoying and, and condemning we share the truth, and when we share it, we share it in love. Because that's the way God would share it with them. God so loved the world. He wasn't, doesn't say God so was so frustrated with the world. God was so discouraged about the world. God so loved the world. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, and by extension, through us sharing about him. Now, when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. And so one came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence. Notice, they didn't put up a fit when they were rearrested. They weren't claiming their rights. They weren't there with banners protesting the Sadducees. They weren't there known for what they were against. They were there preaching the truth. That's all. We, we don't come to preach against this and against that. And so many pulpits, are, we're against this thing and we're against that agenda and we're against that lifestyle. We're against this. And, and those things come up on occasion, but we are for Jesus Christ in people's lives. We are for whoever you are, whatever your background, wherever you come from, whatever your lifestyle, you're the same as all the rest of us. As they say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and there's no one that stands out. Oh, you're that kind of sinner. Whoa, we've never had any of those before. We don't know what to do with that kind of sinner. Join the club. Join the club. But So they don't go. They're there teaching the truth, sharing about life, and, and when they come to rearrest them, they go willingly. There's no violence involved. And, and they didn't take them violently because they feared the people, lest they should, this is the Pharisees and the Sadducees, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, all 12 of the guys. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. So instead of obeying them, they did just the opposite. Instead of shutting up, they filled the place up with the teaching about God and his Savior, Jesus Christ, the one predicted in the Old Testament, the one that is now being uh, lived out and, and professed and witnessed to right here. And they were just scratching their heads going, I, I, 
Didn't, why won't you listen to us? And I imagine them stomping them. Why won't you listen? We told you, we told you not to preach. And, and they're ignoring them. You ever been ignored? Yeah, any parents in here? Yeah. You ever had your instructions ignored? No, none of us parents in here have. We warned you. And instead, what a testimony to the, the prevalence and the persistence of their preaching. You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And interesting, they say, you intend to bring this man's blood on us. They had brought God, the blood of Christ on themselves. Remember when Jesus was being uh, taken away to be crucified, Pontius Pilate trying to set him free, looking for a reason to. He washes his hands of the blood of, of Christ. And then the, the, the people that are right here, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the religious leaders said, let this man's blood be on us and on our children. They must have forgotten they said that because now they're trying to say to, to Peter and the guys, hey, are you trying to make us feel guilty? You're hurting our feelings. I mean, and the, but the intention wasn't that, was to say, hey, the truth is, this is what you guys said, and now they're feeling guilty about it. Are you trying to, you're trying to blame us? Now look what Peter's answer is. Peter answered, and he answers point by point, and he said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And, and what a great statement. Fear of man versus fear of God. I mean, who, when, when there is a conflict, you're telling us to do one thing, God is telling us to do another, now we have a choice to make, and the question you have to ask is, who has the authority in your life? I remember when the kids were little, this one of those things burned into my mind. Uh, I, we had given... Uh, Madeline some instructions. I can't even remember what it was, but we had told Madeline, we want you to do this, and she wasn't doing it, and Jacob got involved and began to say, yeah, Madeline, you need to do this. And she looked him square in the face and said, you're not the boss of me. And I thought, wow, how about that? And she was right. She was right. And so that's the question. Who is the boss of you? Who is ultimately the boss of you? Think about it throughout history. There are times, and I'll say this, we are, as Christians, called to be uh, wonderful citizens of the United States of America. We're supposed to be law-abiding and loving and all of that. And that's easy until there's a conflict. And throughout history, people have been faced with conflict between what's right and what's commanded them to do by, by human command. I think about in, in Egypt, in ancient Egypt, remember, uh, the Pharaoh told the Hebrew midwives to kill the Jewish-born baby, the male babies, throw them in the river. Remember that? It was the first midwife crisis. <laughs> I can't take that back, can I? You think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, bow down to the statue. We ain't bowing down to your statue. Uh, God can save us. But if not, we still ain't bowing down to your statue. Think about people in history, through church history, uh, through human history, where uh, not, in Nazi Germany, where people, Jews were supposed to be carted off and sold out and killed. And yet there were those brave people who hid them and trafficked them out and, and saved their lives and, and saved generations of their families because of that. So there are times where, um, you know, 
and this is where you really find out what you believe, where you really find out who you are. It's easy when everything is lining up and there's no conflict. But, and the world, what's happening right now in the history of our own country and in our time is things are heating up to the point where now it's been easy thus far for Christians in America. It's been easy because we've lived in a relatively Christian-based country, even if not uh, by name, just morally. We still hold to the Christian ethics and morals, generally speaking. Those things are changing. And now what's happening is we are being put in a place to make a choice. And when we have to make that choice... We, we then reveal who it is we want to be our master. That's what Paul says in Romans 6. The one whom you obey, that's your master. And so it's very revealing and can be very purifying in the church. When uh, making a choice, persecution in some ways calls people to make a choice. Are you in or are you out? And I think the church in America is sort of coming to the point where we, we kind of need that. We kind of need that because you and I need to confirm and make that decision in our minds. Are we in or are we out? And what cost are we willing to endure for the sake of the truth? We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. I think Peter is still rooting for them. The people who have put him in prison, the people that have opposed their teaching, and he is still saying, guys, you can still make a choice. Yes, I'm looking you square in the face. And yes, I'm telling you, you murdered God incarnate. But God says you can still repent and be saved. Now, I don't think anybody in here has done anything worse than that. And so the same thing stands that God is not trying to condemn you or make you feel bad or guilty about yourself. What he's trying to do is reveal to you the truth of your behavior, that it is ungodly, and the fact that God can forgive you and wants to be in relationship with you. And he says to them, this is the same Jesus that you killed is the one that wants to forgive you. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. He's given to those who obey him. Interesting statement, isn't it? One final note, and we'll move on to the last section, and we'll move uh, easily through that last section. He says, the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Not as a reward. It's not like, okay, you've obeyed. Now I will reward you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a reward for obedience, but an empowerment for obedience. When you in your heart say, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to live for you. I want to be a witness for you. God says, well, you're going to need my Holy Spirit to do that. And so these guys, as they are preaching the word, they are finding the empowerment of the Spirit is with them. A Spirit-filled church is a church determined to obey the Lord and God empowering that in, in their lives. And that's what we see here. Not only are we witnesses, but the Holy Spirit now coming alongside of us, empowering us to preach. There's miracles, all of this, uh, because we have said we are going to obey what's being said. And as they step out in obedience, they find the you say, well, how, if I step out to obey God, how, what's going to happen? How am I going to get through this? I don't know. When you step out in obedience, you will find the Spirit of God is right there with you. So when they heard this, verse 33, they were furious, literally sawn in two or cut to the heart and plotted not to join them, which is what I would, we would hope they would do, 
but instead plotted to kill them. So the church could have ended right there. Could have wiped all the guys out. Everything would have been dispersed. Done. But that's not what happened. God is going to use a Pharisee named Gamaliel to help set them free. Verse 34, Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, notice, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. This guy, Gamaliel, he is the E.F. Hutton. Remember that commercial? When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. I'm showing my age, evidently. Um, It was a commercial years ago. Uh, He was the E.F. Hutton of his day. When he talked, people listened. He had a great amount of weight. He was called among the rabbis, among the Pharisees, our master. He was the, the either son or grandson of a, of a great rabbi named Hillel, the president of the Sanhedrin. Tremendous amount of respect. And he says, you know what? Let's talk about this, guys. And he reasons with them. He says, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, this man named Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. So this man, he raised up. People joined him. And notice what happened next. Um, he was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. So point, uh, an example number one by Gamaliel is Theodos. He was a leader, he rose up, he was killed, and all of those that obeyed him scattered. Number two point in the argument is this man Judas of Galilee, verse 37. He rose up in the days of the census, drew away many people after him, and he also perished. And what happened to those that obeyed him? They were dispersed. So again, two examples, guys are raised up, Romans kill them, and then their their followers are dispersed. So Gamaliel says, based on that, he says, I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. I mean, let Rome will deal with them. And Rome has already dealt with Jesus. He's been killed. And if if, if history is going to repeat itself, then all of his followers are just going to disperse. That's probably what's going to happen. But look what he says. Keep away, he says, verse 38, from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing, just like these other two guys. But, he says, if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. How many of you would consider uh, that fighting against God is probably not a good idea? You're probably not going to win that one. Now, many people have tried and we continue to watch people try to fight against God. And it's just not going to work. We would not be here if the church was not of the Lord. We would not be here. It would have been overthrown just like these other movements that, that happened. So verse 40, they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, notice they were, had... Uh, flayed them is the word. This was not just a slap on the hand this time. Last time they threatened them, let them go. Now they beat them with the three-stranded leather whip 39 times or 40 minus one was what they, the legal limit was for the Jews. They would do one on the chest and two on the back and it would uh, destroy skin and expose the underlying tissue. It was very painful and and so very serious they'd beaten them and then they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus they're trying to give a little emphasis to what they were saying so now satan says can't beat them join them let me try to use infiltration god exposes that so now satan says well if you can't join them beat them let me use intimidation 
Will it work? Even around the world today, many of your brothers and sisters in Christ uh, just going to the, the East Coast Pastors Conference not too long ago, hearing the, the testimony of a Syrian pastor and having been uh, beaten with electrified cords, I forget how many times, and him sharing the testimony of how he prayed and how God took away his feeling of pain. He didn't feel, they were beating him with electrified cords and he was not feeling any pain. Amazing. And this goes on around the world. So they beat these guys and throughout history, and said, don't you dare speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. And so they departed from the presence of the council. What's that next word say? Rejoicing. Would that have been me? Would they, I would have departed complaining, God, where, where, why would you let this ha- I thought you loved me. Why would you let this happen? William Barclay wrote this phenomenal quote. He said, Jesus promised his disciples three things that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. (laughs) They departed rejoicing. Why were they rejoicing? They weren't rejoicing because they got beaten. Nobody rejoices because they got beaten. So what in the world is going on in the minds of these people that they would leave that situation and be rejoicing. It says it right here. They were rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name's sake. Jesus had told them, if they did it to me, they're going to do it to you. And this to them was not an indication that they were doing anything wrong. Quite the opposite. Their beating was an indication that they were doing things right. What we believe is dangerous. What we believe is offensive to the world because the world doesn't want to hear about sin. The world doesn't want to hear about the authority of God or the existence of God. So when we make these claims and we stand on these things, recognize that it's offensive to people, to the world we live in. And it's a, it's a world empowered by who? Satan. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Politicians coming up and down, commercialism coming up and down, all of the things in the world that we look at, all of this lying under the sway of wicked one. And as the quote says, all it is, needing for, all it is needed for wickedness to prosper is for good men to do nothing. And I thank God that these good men didn't do nothing. In fact, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily, where? In the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They did not back down. And aren't we thankful they didn't? I mean, what if they had? Where would we, we, at any moment, in some sense, in a human sense, the church could have been squashed. But instead, what do we see historically? Persecution brings not diminishing in the church, it brings growth in the church. It just does. And so I, I read these things, and, and these spark me to pray, Lord, I, I want to be prepared now, because right now it's still fairly safe to preach the gospel. Here we are on Sunday morning, but you and I both see the handwriting on the wall, as it were, don't we? Especially as I talk about safe places and offensive language, and more and more, if we say this is sin or that is sin or, or that's not pleasing to God, well, that, that offends me emotionally, and now that's considered hate speech. 
And so it is, and I think I'm preaching to the choir. You guys know that this is not far down the road for us in this country. And so we're praying already, Lord, just I want to have, and I'll I'll close with this. You know, we live in sort of this culture where tattoos are becoming really popular. And don't hear me say this is against tattoos. That's something you've got to work out. But we're we're marking our flesh. And sometimes they're good things. They're they're verses from the Bible and this and that. And I was just reading Galatians chapter 6 this morning. And Paul says, uh, people question Paul's apostleship. You know, is he really an apostle? Is he really, you know, speaking for God? And uh, because he wasn't driving a fancy car and charging money for his sermons. And he said, people ought to leave me alone. Why? Because I bear in my body the marks or the stigma or the cuttings of Christ. Or, or, and, and it speaks of when you were a slave owner, you would tattoo or brand your slaves as your property. Or if you were a military guy that followed a certain general, you would, in some ways and in some senses, uh, that would happen where you would brand yourself or tattoo yourself, so to speak, with the name of the general you served. And those were the marks of the flesh that showed who you were serving for Paul. The marks that him, that for him that mattered not weren't tattoos that had a Bible verse. And again, I'm not saying that that's all wrong, and, and I'm, so I'm not, this is not a, an anti-tattoo discussion what it is is that there may come a day where the tattoos or the marks of our flesh that demonstrate and validate our ministry and our service to Christ are the ones we get like Paul got through being beaten or through being imprisoned or through being stoned or these things standing up to the offenses, standing up to the opposition that we face for Christ. So we're not there yet, folks, maybe in small ways, but uh, I pray that, you know, as the Lord tarries, that God will, will not just make us an exciting church or, or one of the, an entertaining church, but a powerful church full of people that are willing to do whatever it takes to obey the Lord and to stand firm because he who endures to the end shall be saved. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, just close out today, we're so thankful for your word and for the testimony of these men that counted the truth important enough and valuable enough to stake their very lives on it. Lord, I pray you would raise up just another generation like that, exposed by, um, by conflict, exposed by opposition, Lord. I, just, I know you're not giving us these things uh, without uh, and in a vacuum of preparing us for what comes next in our lives, Lord. So prepare us, prepare your church for what's coming down the road. It's in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Let's stand.